breast cancer. Those are two words your patients don't want to hear and news that you don't want to deliver. Unfortunately for one in eight American women, it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime. And the risks are clear. Besides being female, the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history. In fact, about 80% of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older. And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry. My mom had breast cancer, but I'm only 43. The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lilly has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer, find out about events they can attend in their city, and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too. I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. Answers that matter. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Women of all ages are dealing with cancer every day, and there are new treatments to help protect their fertility and possible treatments for them in the future. And joining me is Dr. Clarissa Garcia. Dr. Garcia and I are discussing issues relating to the impact of cancer on young women, both reproductive and prepubescent. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Garcia. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So this issue, I think, is one that has become really very state-of-the-art in the sense that we are seeing, unfortunately, more younger women having cancers. Can you comment a little on what the type of the most common cancers facing women today can be? First, I'd just like to mention, in terms of talking about the magnitude of the problem, there are really over 10 million cancer survivors in this country every year, and the number is really growing because of the improvements in cancer treatments. About 5% of these cases occur in women of childbearing age. The most common types of cancer in these women tend to be leukemias, lymphomas, cancers of the central nervous system, and breast cancer is a major cause of cancer in women, particularly in those women in the 20 to you know, 39 age group that are you know, really trying to have children. Currently, just looking at the women who are suffering for the other types of cancer, what kind of therapies do they undergo that specifically affect their fertility? Well, cancer treatment is generally involves a combination of chemotherapy, radiation, and sometimes surgical removal of the cancer. So, you know, the treatment clearly depends on what type of cancer a patient has. The important thing to realize is that these treatments do destroy actively dividing cells, and those cells are present within the gonads. 
both as, you know, ovarian follicles in the female and spermatogonia or sperm germ cells in the male. Is there a difference in patients who are treated prepubescent versus postpubescent as far as these kind of therapies and their effect on the gonads? Yes, there is. It appears that prepubescent girls are protected to some degree from some of the damaging effects of the cancer treatments. And it's not exactly clear why that is, whether there are just more numbers in these patients or whether something else is going on. In addition, I think there are specific differences in girls who go through, you know, certain types of cancer treatments before puberty. Girls, for instance, who have cranial radiation for brain tumors can have a lot of pubertal abnormalities that occur. Many women will have problems later on with fertility and also with premature vein failure because of the damaging effects of the chemotherapy and radiation. Do you think that there are some ways that during chemotherapy or during radiation therapy that we can reduce the impact this has on the fertility of the patient involved? With radiation treatment, particularly to the pelvis, one method that has been quite helpful has been actually moving the gonads or the ovaries outside of the radiation field. And this is done routinely in children who are going to have pelvic irradiation. And it can preserve ovarian function in, you know, two-thirds of these patients. So that's helpful. In terms of protection with chemotherapies, there are really no good agents that we know of that can help protect the ovaries. Some medications have been studied in the past. GnRH agonists, such as luprolide acetate or Lupron is one brand. Other medications such as GnRH antagonists are also being currently studied. And there are some promising effects in animal studies, but it has just not been clearly protective in humans. And the whole idea of these medications is kind of to revert the ovary to kind of a prepubescent state to maybe quiet the follicular development so that there's less damage that's going to happen. So the medications are essentially taking advantage of the natural benefit of being prepubescent when you're treating this kind of problem? Yes, that is the idea behind it. Again, it's not clear if it really works in humans. In addition, there are some anti-apoptotic agents that are being studied and show a significant promise in mice and you know, animal models. So hopefully there will be developments in the future of, of things that we can actually give patients to protect from the damaging effects of the chemotherapy and radiation. In undergoing some of these things, do you find that dealing with the prepubescent patient that parents are having a lot of concerns, particularly about fertility. Do you think this is something that they're thinking of at this time, or are they so overwhelmed by the diagnosis that they don't even get a chance to really address these issues? Well, I think that both the medical community and the patients tend to be overwhelmed with the diagnosis, and the focus clearly is on treating the cancer and basically making it go away and improving long-term survival. However, now that it's been more clear what the long-term effects are, there's more press related to, you know, the issues surrounding fertility and cancer survivorship, I think more and more patients and their parents are hearing about it and becoming concerned. In addition, oncologists are talking to their patients more about it, which is good so that we can actually give them options for the future. There are studies that show that pediatric cancer patients and young cancer survivors really want to know before they go through cancer therapy what their risk is and what they can do, if anything, to help preserve fertility in the future. It's wonderful that we're raising that awareness. You're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, and today I am speaking with Dr. Clarissa Garcia. 
Dr. Garcia, we were talking about ways to really raise concern and what would be some of the cancers we would be concerned about and the effects of therapy on fertility. How are some ways to check in these patients whether fertility is or will be affected when they undergo this kind of therapy? Well, at this point, it is a bit unclear because there are not any good studies looking at measures of fertility in this population. There are some very limited studies that have assessed hormone measures and ultrasound measures of fertility after cancer therapy, and it does appear that some of these measures are different in cancer survivors compared to healthy control patients. For instance, measures such as follicle-stimulating hormone, which is a hormone that we routinely check for patients with infertility, has been shown to be somewhat higher in these young cancer survivors compared to healthy women. And there are other measures like inhibin levels and anti-malarian hormone levels that appear promising. The ultrasound measures include things like looking at the volume of the ovaries and measuring the number of antral follicles within the ovary. Now, this is regarding the postpubescent patient that we can test these things. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. So in the prepubescent patient, really, there is no way at the present time to check for fertility? Not really. No. Then if we're concentrating on these postpubescent or reproductive age women, is there anything else besides some of those lab tests and ultrasounds that can be done to identify whether their fertility is still intact? Well, obviously, menstrual history is important as well. So usually keeping track of their menstrual history, giving them menstrual calendars, and then doing some of these tests, at least investigationally, can potentially, it shows promise. Other than that, it's actually very difficult to predict who's going to have a problem with fertility and who isn't. And that's one of the things that we're actually trying to study at this point, trying to assess factors prior to cancer therapy and after cancer therapy, trying to figure out, can we identify these women who actually will have a problem in the future so that we can target those for fertility preservation? What kind of factors do you think you're looking for? Can you expand on that? You know, obviously a woman's age is particularly important at the time of cancer diagnosis, what type of chemotherapy, radiation therapy that she's going to be receiving, the type of cancer that she has. We're also looking to see if measures of oxidative stress within the body before and during cancer therapy may actually predict whether a woman will develop infertility and premature ovarian failure. Reviewing the Childhood Cancer Survival Study, which I thought was a wonderful collection of patients looking at you know, the survivors of mostly prepubescent cancers, it was interesting that those patients had a fairly large number of growth restrictions, as you were mentioning earlier, but also things like thyroid disease, which we know has a significant impact on the fertility of patients in the future. And I was hoping maybe you could comment towards that as a risk factor. Okay. Childhood cancer survivors can have other endocrinologic problems, absolutely, particularly those with cranial cancers and who have received cranial irradiation. Many have deficits in growth hormone secretion and can have thyroid abnormalities as well. And it's really unclear whether that has an impact or plays a role on their menstrual cycles in the future or their future fertility. It's something that really has not been looked into at all at this point. We know that thyroid disorders, hypothyroidism, can cause menstrual irregularities and can be associated with infertility. In addition, there's more and more data linking hypothyroidism to, you know, miscarriage and potentially complications in children after birth. Do you think that if a patient undergoes evaluation of their fertility after therapy, whether it matters if their evaluation is soon after therapy is completed or in the distant future? And if so, which one is better? 
It's difficult to know. Again, I think there's limited information on that. What happens often in these patients is that treatment acutely can cause kind of a cessation of puberty or the menstrual function to actually stop so that they have a period of no menses for anywhere from, you know, six months to two years even. And during that time, hormone values and ultrasound measures may actually show that there's evidence of ovarian dysfunction. Mm -hmm. even signs of potentially premature menopause. Some of those effects over time do reverse. So, you know, it's not exactly clear how soon should we check, and it varies by woman. So, you know, after about two years, we generally feel that things have reverted to more of a normal state. And so checking hormone measures at that point probably are most reflective of what's going on. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Clarissa Gracia, on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.